So Bill Farmer is a Baptist minister. He's joining his denomination in a large convention. There's to be thousands and thousands of them in a large convention. They've chosen New Orleans for their convention site for some reason. They decide since they're in New Orleans and there are so many wicked souls there that a prelude to their meeting would be to witness in the city. Now, Bill Farmer didn't want to have anything to do with it. He wasn't real strong uh, in terms of their methodology. He wasn't sure he liked what was going to happen, but he sure was curious. So he went down to Bourbon Street on opening night, and he tells the story of walking into Bourbon Street and being hit in the face with a pamphlet from a young adult. And the kid said, read this. What is it? Farmer asked. Well, it's a publication about God. What does it say? I don't know. You haven't read your own publication? He says, no. Farmer says, well, I'm sure that it says something about how much God loves me. And the kid said, oh, no. No, oh, no. Because what we know is that you're going to go to hell if you don't repent, and it's going to be very hot. It probably says something about hellfire. And Farmer said, you're concerned about my eternal destination. You're concerned about me. You haven't read your publication, and you don't know my name. You don't know what your material says? Kid has a stack of pamphlets in his hand, and he said, All I know is i got to pass all these out before I can go eat Cajun food with my friends, okay? Look, you're going to burn. You need to repent now. That's all I know. And he leaves him. Great impression, huh? Jonah, the prophet of Israel, has less concern for Nineveh and Ninevites than this one witness we just heard about from New Orleans. Jonah, the commissioned prophet with an assignment to Nineveh, who doesn't want to go. And the irony in the story begins from the very first verse, Jonah chapter 1. This is how it begins. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me, which means its wickedness is in my presence. I'm aware of its wickedness. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Clearly employed by God, clearly on a mission, clearly an assignment any other Israelite prophet would be happy for. It's Nineveh, the enemy of Israel. Nineveh, the city city that's destroyed part of their kingdom and that will take out the rest of them soon. It's Nineveh. If anybody needs a word from the Lord, Nineveh needs a word from the Lord. The text says Jonah runs. He boards a boat. He heads for Tarshish. Tarshish, far from Nineveh. In fact, so far, it's not possible for a boat to come by Tarshish. It's not possible for a boat headed to Tarshish to come by Nineveh in the middle of the land. Tarshish, Isaiah tells us, a place where God is not known. It's The text's way of telling us Jonah's going as far from God as Jonah can get. Fleeing God's order, fleeing God's jurisdiction, as if that's an option for a prophet. Jonah is now a fugitive and on the run. The text is silent as to why. 
Why does he disobey? Why does he disobey so passionately? We're left to our own guesswork. Jonah, the fifth of these 12 minor prophets in your Bible, is quite different than the other 11. Jonah is not a book about the sermons of the prophet Jonah, like other prophets write. Jonah is not a book necessarily about unrepentant people like other minor prophets. Jonah is not specifically about a God who doesn't know what to do with unrepentant people like other minor prophets. Jonah is a book about Jonah. It's a book about the insider, Jonah, and a look inside his life, his thoughts, his convictions, and eventually his motives. The story is between Jonah and God, and within the first two verses we see Jonah the prophet of Israel is Jonah the fugitive, running from his God, also his boss. When most people think of Jonah, they think of Jonah and the whale. In fact, we say them together, don't we? Jonah and the whale, and we think of the cartoonish figure that we often show our children in kindergarten and cradle roll, primary Sabbath school. The whale, the creature, is only mentioned in three verses in all four of these chapters. Some people think the story of Jonah and the whale is really about the miracle that God provides for Jonah when Jonah is so stubborn and doesn't want to accept his assignment. I'd like to consider this morning that the story of Jonah is about something much deeper for Jonah personally. It is a personal struggle. It's Jonah wrestling with God. Sailing for Tarshish, there's a violent storm, as we saw acted out here this morning. There's a violent storm, and before anything happens, the sailors, who we are told are pagan sailors, they don't know Jonah's God. They pray before they act, just like you and I are taught to pray. And then they begin to throw things overboard, and then they wake up Jonah, and they ask the prophet from Israel to pray also to his God. Jonah chooses not to at that moment. Jonah and the sailors now, they cast lots because they want to know which of all the deities has brought this trouble on them. If they could just figure out which god is responsible, they could talk to that god and get their problem to go away. Jonah confesses confesses in verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And he's confessed an awful lot. Now the sailors are afraid. Now they know which God they're up against. They're up against the God of Jonah, the one who made the sea and everything. So Jonah says, throw me overboard, and the sailors don't want to do that. Instead, the Bible tells us they turned their boat around and they rowed hard for the shore. When that wasn't successful, then they went back to Jonah and thought, yeah, maybe it's time you go. Before they throw him over, they pray again. And he's gone, and they make sacrifices and vows, we assume, with Jonah's God. At least, at the very least, these sailors have added Yahweh to their directory of gods, of deities, at the very least. The pagan sailors, however wrong they are about what they believe, are faithful. And Jonah, however right he is about what he believes, certainly shows no faith, no devotion to God. All his right doctrine makes no difference. Now, 
inside the whale or the sea monster, whatever this creature is, the point the text makes is that God has appointed this. God has set up a, a pathway for Jonah, and he gets three days in time out inside the belly of a whale. It is up against the wall of these, the whale intestines that he sort of has his reality check, and he becomes awake and uh, afraid and awake, and he decides now he's going to pray. How many of you tell me, and how often I do this myself, how I know this is true, we don't really, really have to turn to God until our back is up against the wall of a whale intestine, until it's really bad, until there aren't any other options. When there are no other options and we are afraid for our life, we surely do pray, don't we? I understand that. I do it too. You know, and I spent the summer in Athens a few summers ago. Just before my trip came to an end, I got stuck in an elevator. Have I told you this? My colleagues, when I say to my colleagues, have I told this story? They, I, they say, you're losing it. <laughs> I say, it's a good sign. I've been here long enough that I don't know what stories I've told. They say, you're losing it. <laughs> so I'm in an elevator. We're on, we're climbing up towards the fourth floor. There's only four floors in this hotel, but then it comes down and there's an A and a B, like the medical center. So I have, you know, about six floors there. On our way up, we stop, we halt. Try not to panic, hold still. You know, pretty soon the elevator begins to move and we're coming down. And that's pretty good, only we don't stop when we get to floor three. And then we start moving kind of quick and jerky. And we don't stop when we get to floor two. And it appears to me that I'm on an elevator that's going to bottom out. It is like every bad dream you've ever had, ladies. Now, remember, I've said sometimes we ladies work these things out in our dreams. We dream and escape for every crisis that could possibly happen. I've already had this dream. If you're stuck in a falling elevator, there's a plan you're supposed to do. Of course, I'm waiting for a MacGyver. It's like a MacGyver moment or a James Bond moment or Indiana Jones. You're just This is what those movies are made of, but I have a plan that I have dreamt that as it gets close to the bottom, I'm going to estimate when I think we're going to smack and I'll jump. <laughs> so I'll be in midair when the elevator hits the bottom. Isn't that a dandy of a plan? How ridiculous. No wonder we pray. It's the best I can do. I'll jump. Fine, the elevator came down gently. We walked out safe. So we pray when our back is up against the wall, just like Jonah, and sometimes the prayer that comes out of our mouth is as perfectly pious as Jonah's prayer. Listen to what he comes up with when he's trapped in the belly of a whale. He says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me from the depths of the grave. I called for help, and he listened to my cry. Have you heard Jonah ask for help yet? And he's bellowing out. Verse 2, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless, worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. While he's in trouble, he takes a jab at the pagans. The pagans, by the way, on the boat, who prayed when he didn't. But I, verse 9, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. 
The prayer is an entire chapter long, and finally when he lands on the last line, he's on to something now. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, salvation is God's choice. God makes these decisions. And the next thing that happens in verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. It's, some scholars say it's an exclamation point, God's sense of humor. You finally got it. I'll let you out. God decides about salvation, Jonah. So now they're ready for take two. Jonah goes to Nineveh. This time, he's supposed to say what God tells him to say. The first time, he's, he uses his own words. He's not given anything specific the first time. This time, he's commanded, say what I tell you to say. He walks into a city that's supposedly three days wide, and one day into the city, he begins with his sermon that is not much longer than the sign you saw earlier. It's just five words in Hebrew. Forty days, Nineveh. That's it. We're led to believe he cried it as if he repeated it over and over again as he marched around Nineveh. Just five words of a sermon. No gospel in that sermon at all, by the way. What can a prophet expect from a sermon like that? which is why there's such a surprise when Nineveh believes in God, your Bible says. It's the same word for when Sarah and Abraham believe in God. They really believe. Nineveh now is in a full revival. They change their clothes. They begin a process of repentance and making sacrifices. And when the king of Assyria hears about it, he takes off his royal robes too. He begins with a sacrifice and he orders that the entire city do what they're already doing, by the way. He, he orders everyone to repent to Jonah's God, all the way down to the animals of the city. This exaggerated way of saying everything within the city gates of Nineveh will now be devoted to Jonah's God. If we do this, maybe God will have compassion. That's what the king says. Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. He did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Some people suggest that this here is the real conversation in Jonah. Is God immutable? Is he unchanging? Or does God change God's mind? Is it possible you can persuade God to change God's mind? Some say, ah, that's the real theological conversation in Jonah. By the way, there are several instances in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not shy nor embarrassed about saying, God changes decisions. Several times we read about that in Exodus, in Amos, here in Jonah. We read about it in 2 Samuel. Is God allowed to change a decision? The character of God never changes. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Jonah was greatly displeased and he becomes angry. And here he finally blows his spout and our motive becomes clear. He prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, this is, not what I, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you were a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my life away from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Stop being so compassionate. I knew this is how you were going to behave. This is the kind of God you are. It's better if I die. And God replies in verse 4, Have you any right to be angry, Jonah? 
the words of God to Jonah are very much like the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 20. You remember that parable where there are the workers in the field? Some begin early in the day, some a few hours into the morning, some a few hours later, and some right before quitting time. And the owner comes and pays them all the same denarius for, for their work. And those who worked all day protested and said, we bore the work on our backs in the heat of the day. Why do you give them as much pay as you give us? It's not fair. We were here working. And the field master replied there in Matthew 20, verse 15, Are you envious because I'm generous? It's the same words God uses to Jonah. Do you have a right to be angry? God, the master who pays an entire day's wages for just one hour of work, does that make you envious? It's not fair. The internal struggle is there in Jonah. It's not fair. This is Jonah's song. Stop it, God. Must you be compassionate and merciful and slow to anger? But we are the ones who work. We are the ones who stay on the narrow road. We are the ones who've sweated it out for our salvation. We are the ones who've earned that ticket. Stop being so nice to them, God recognize our commitment, and destroy them. This is what Jonah is saying. As Jonah's story comes to an end, he goes outside the city to pout, and a tree grows up and provides him shade, and then the tree dies, and once again Jonah becomes angry as a selfish child when the plant dies. God says the same question. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine, about the plant? This is what makes you angry, Jonah? Finally, verse 10 of that last chapter there. The Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. But Nineveh had more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? It is divine generosity, and it troubles Jonah. Before Jonah turned to pray to God, divine generosity was at work. Before Jonah turned around and said, God, maybe this was a bad idea, divine generosity was at work. Before Jonah ever had any inkling inside of him, he would go to Nineveh. Divine generosity was already providing a way for Jonah. The problem Jonah's having is that divine generosity also exists for Nineveh. It's not fair. It is the elder brother syndrome, sung a little different way. The elder sister syndrome. My brother's here visiting for a few days. We were sharing stories last night about going to Tijuana when we were kids. Went just across the border. We had some money to spend to bring souvenirs home. I remember buying a bouquet of paper mache flowers. Five for a dollar. Pretty good deal. And it was being sold by a woman sitting on the sidewalk. I'd never seen such tattered, worn skin on a woman. And I was so intrigued by her face. And she was selling Wrigley spearmint gum and paper mache flowers. And for a buck, I bought those five flowers. And my father thought that was ridiculous. What are you going to do with those flowers? We're traveling in the motorhome. They're going to take up too much space. Five, one dollar for five flowers. What a ridiculous souvenir. 
I was telling my brother last night, I, yeah, I bought these paper mache flowers, and it made Dad, I don't know why it made him angry. And Leroy says, oh, yeah, well, I bought a pocket knife, one of those butterfly pocket knives. But they're illegal. He said, I smuggled it home. Dad knows. Did Dad know you bought it? Dad helps him smuggle a pocket knife home. And I'm in trouble for buying $1 worth of paper mache flowers, safe as can be. It's not fair. And so how easily even older siblings fall into this pattern. It's not fair. You get a pocket knife? It's not fair is the song Jonah is singing. Adventist Christianity has some work to do with the idea of divine generosity. Adventist Christianity needs to wrestle with this some more. Not against it, but with it. I'm becoming convinced that Adventist Christians are never really going to be able to embrace the unexplainable generosity of God. Because if God is really this generous, it's just an excuse for people to be selfish. We don't want people to believe God is that generous that he would swoop in and rescue us like the Ninevites because it it puts us into a free-for-all as Christians, anything-goes kind of Christianity. We We don't want a God that's that generous because when we say probation has closed, it's closing. When we say the judgment's coming upon you, you have to make a decision, you have to decide. You repent because the second coming almost here. We mean now, not when you see Jesus in the clouds of glory, because we've repented now. We've chosen the tough path now. We're working on righteousness now, and everyone should have to do it that way. Adventist Christianity needs to wrestle with this. When I was in academy, this was the song that would not end. I remember in all of our Bible classes, us saying, yes, but if God's always going to redeem you, why don't you just wait till the end? You could have all your fun, party hardy, and then just turn to God. I even remember thinking, if I didn't have to pay tithe, I could have a lot of money. And then just turn to God, and God's going to be ready for you. Divine generosity, we say. It really can't be so because then we say, that's just cheap grace. And I think that that is a cheap shot because we don't know what to do with divine generosity. There is no such thing as cheap grace because grace is God's category. Grace is God's character. There isn't anything I can do or you can do that can cheapen God's amazing gift to us. Grace is a God domain. My choice to blow it off, to minimize it, to ridicule it, to milk it for all it's worth does not cheapen God's gift to me or to you. There is no such thing as cheap grace. God opens himself up to these accusations when he chooses to be generous and he chooses to give us a choice. And this is what Jonah wrestles with. Divine generosity. It's not fair. There are not too many new stories in the world. There are not too many new stories in Christianity. It seems to me, when we read the Bible, we pretty much come up against the same story again and again and again. We tell the story of divine generosity 
over and over. We read it over and over. We read it expressed different ways. We read people reacting to it. We read people embracing it. We see people in every page of Scripture who don't deserve it, but it is the same story we read again and again. That's the story of the Christian faith. When I was a little girl, I've told you I was adopted, and because I looked different than all the rest of these ones over here, sometimes we'd get together and people would say, where did you get her? Me. Where'd you get her? And my mom would say, just tell them the story. In my three-year-old voice, in my five-year-old voice, in my ten-year-old voice, the story never changed. The story was always the same. Where did you get her? Well, one day they came to the hospital because they needed a baby in their family, and, and they wanted one, so they came and they looked in the nursery window and they saw all the baskets there, and they came and they got me and they said, well, this one's ours, and we're taking her home, and we're going to love her, and that's how I got here. And the story never changes. It's the same story again and again. God says, I chose you to be my people. How many of you? Keep reading the Bible. (laughs) I chose all of you to be my people. I chose all of you to love. Some of you will choose me back and some of you won't. But that will never change the fact that I have this generosity for every single one. May we wrestle with divine generosity, but may we stop once and for all wrestling against it. That is my prayer. Amen.